Welcome to Bios Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe August 6, 2010. Bios Live is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out B-I-O-T-A dot slash podcast. And uh, if, we, if we hear a little hum or a little human noise in the background, that's Bruce Damer. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Tom. And I'll, I'm just standing in the EvoGrid master server room here at the Ancient Oaks Farm. Uh-huh. Where we've got two very loud reconditioned servers running. It's running the big simulation uh, that Peter and I have set up uh, practically overnight with old digital space servers and so down in the Peter farm. Is Peter you currently? Is Peter on location with you? No, he's in he's in Australia. Okay. So he instructed me remotely, and we went and dug up our old servers, and we're building our own grid. Wonderful. And so we've got uh, two or three machines in the barn where the noise abatement is better, and um, they're quiet. And then we have two machines up here and a big server running up here, and it's running. You know, 10, 20, 30 hours of of simulation uh, flat out. Very good. So can you describe the service specifications for those listening in that might be interested? Yeah, they're, they're all generic uh, Windows dual, mostly dual processor machines between 10 years old and about six, and six, six or five years old. Gosh. That we pulled out of our rack in August. When we went to a virtual private host, we didn't have to maintain our hardware. Certainly, yeah. We've been having trouble finding uh, Debian-based computing resources to run big tests, and, and Peter was running them at home, and they were taking like 20 hours. Yeah. And so I said, hey, you know, we have one Debian Linux machine that I pulled out of the rack, and let's." And he sent me a, a C, you know, a, a, a burn image regarding to CD, and we're, I've been Converting all of the old machines to Debian, the slaves to the EvoGrid, to uh-huh. analysis and server machines. So we're, we we made our own grid at home. Right, and you have you have a Cray two, a Cray three, and some kind of experimental Cray five from memory, don't you? At the Digibarn, I've got a Cray one, serial number thirty eight, uh, and the Cray two prototype. Uh, which there were only two made. This is the only survivor. And actually, that Cray 2 prototype was the first supercomputer ever to be put on the Internet, on the ARPANET yes. in the 80s. And then I've got pieces of a Cray 3 right? and and a, and a document from the Cray 4 project, which never went anywhere. Okay, that's what I'm, that's what I'm recalling. So there's no chance to boot up the Cray 2 then? No, it's sitting uh, just a couple of rooms away from the current EvoGrid Simulation Center, which uh, was established this morning. Yes. Uh, um, it's, what you're it's missing there. is a web camera, you know, Bruce. What you need is a web camera pointed into EvoGrid Central, so folks can can follow you on the on the web, watching in as you uh, churn out more data. Well, actually, I do have a webcam in that area. It's a very good idea. I'll just uh, if I can find another network cable, I'll I'll do that. I'll point point Terrific. people to it. Yep. Very good. Very good. So, in terms of artificial life twelve, I know both you and and Peter are going to be at it. When are you actually departing for artificial life twelve? A week from Monday, uh, and it's a very very long flight for Peter from Australia. Certainly. And it's pretty bad. You know, pretty 
pretty routine for me from here. I, I <laughs> do so many, so many flights to Europe, and it's extremely exciting. We're actually going initially to computational intelligence in games, which is the IEEE conference in Copenhagen that I'm doing an opening keynote for. And then, then we're heading down to Odin to, to Eli's 12, a uh, day and a half later, hopefully slightly recovered. Yes. Terrific. So I, I trust you both are going to be taking a lot of photos and streaming them online and various other things in, in your various speaking and just general being engagements through that trip. Yeah, it'll be heavily documented and recorded audio. You know, any interviews I can get my hands on, you know, that are podcastable, I'll pick them up for for your for you. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes, I think uh, when I was in the Bay Area, I apologized at the SRI talk with regards to this A Life portal that I've been planning and talking with folks about for about six months now. And the other thing is really the A Life Twelve audio. Unfortunately. Yeah, my, my time has been similarly hectic, and uh, I think it was just a bridge too far in terms of getting multiple MP3 recorders out to various people. But I understand the audio still might be recorded, so it's probably down to me to contact Mark Bodo or someone following the conclusion of the conference to see if it's podcastable audio as well. So yeah, And I'll have my recorder, at least for, we have a, I'm co-chairing the track on Origin of Life, uh, with another gentleman at the conference, and I'll record that whole. In, in fact, there's two two sessions on Origins of Life, and I'll record them both. Wonderful. And I'll record our tutorial. We supposedly have an EvoGrid tutorial, and I'll record that audio as well. Yes. And since we last spoke, I, I can't recall when you actually last appeared on a Biota Live, but we've had Jeff Clune on more recently, and I'm not sure if you've been following all the media stuff, but... Uh, Hyperneat and Jeff's work in particular has really exploded recently, particularly, well, I think it started with a New Scientist article that now The Guardian and I think The the Telegraph in the UK both picked up stories that uh, I guess Jeff Clune's the next Terminator builder or something like that. Oh, <laughs> it's okay. gone in some kind of bizarre direction. But no, the Hyperneat stuff is fascinating and particularly the... Uh, the ability to grow very rapid, very organically inspired neural network brains, I think, is a, a real breakthrough. Um, and it shows a lot of the kind of layering of simulation ideas. But no, Jeff has been, uh, has been suitably lauded in the uh, UK media. And a, a big shout out to Jeff for, uh, for his work and the wonderful stories that are currently being written. Some, some science fiction inspired and some actually more on the the hard data that seemed to come through the New Scientist article. So yeah, no, I understand. I understand he spent some time with you at the at the farm, Bruce. Yeah, in fact, he did, and it was a it was a wonderful connection. We just sat and actually recorded that. I sent you that conversation too. Yes, I uh, think the, I listened to it, and I think it thoroughly overlapped. Um, it was one of those difficult things where having just had a, I think probably an hour and a bit recording worth of Jeff talking at great length um, and at a certain level of detail uh, it was similar to the recording that I had made with Jeff with obviously additional um, additional narrative and kind of divergent ideas but I thought at the time uh, it may be a bit of audio that I save and maybe re-air uh, later the, this year The juicy stuff comes at the end where uh, we get into a friendly debate about 
uh, in my contention that if you do these abstract worlds where you invent all the physics and you invent all the the stuff, you get stuff that isn't of use to people who are in biology. Mm. And and that, that it shows neat things, but people just kind of like go, huh. And it might be in maybe an order of magnitude more interesting. Like he was talking about, well, couldn't we extend Carlson's creatures and have, you know, better phenotypes and better genotypes and this and that and the physics that drives much more and couldn't we get open-ended evolution we we get a breakthrough where we get a new form on top of the previous forms and i said yeah that's that's extremely valuable but again you know people chalk it up to oh those crazy artificial life people are at it again they've done something that's very cool but when it comes down to the people you know doing the hard struggle in the origin of life field or mm. in biochemistry they basically say isn't that very nice? You know, pat us on the head. Yeah, I'm not so, sure if you heard the um, the talk that I gave at SRI, but that was certainly Oshi Yudka's contention with regards to what we do in artificial life. And following that, I don't necessarily want to say that I proved him wrong, but I certainly worked with Osha um, through the weeks following uh, in order to create a disaster preparedness version of Noble Ape to actually show that Noble Ape could be used to simulate things like Katrina, and particularly, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the um, social graph engine that uh, Bob Bottram added on top of Noble Ape, a kind of uh, Facebook for Noble Apes, basically. But this also uh, created feedback loops for disaster preparedness simulation and also ideas of how um, population centres move in these kind of circumstances. So um, at the SRI talk towards the end, OSHA throws down the gauntlet that what we are is just basically model rail enthusiasts tinkering in our perfect little universes. And I think what I tried to show um, quite decisively uh, that this wasn't actually the case and really it was down to folks such as Osher to come back to these simulations and actually see the useful parts. And I think ultimately that's really your argument. I don't think it's necessarily against what Jeff was saying either because really you can create fantastic worlds and create interesting things that come out of it. But it's your inter- I mean, it's literally your primary interaction with scientists that have interests in the areas of biology and biochemistry and origins of, of life emergent from chemistry, which has moved your artificial life simulation in that particular direction. So I don't think Jeff is, was saying specifically that this is impossible with regards to fantastic worlds. In fact, I think what's interesting is that I agree with you both, and I don't think your arguments are mutually exclusive at all. The distinction is just that you require primary interaction with scientists, which I don't think Jeff is discounting either. I mean, Jeff loves having primary interaction with scientists too, surely. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I hit this again. I did a, a workshop at the Singularity University on <laughs> Tuesday, and and there again... You know, what's interesting is my work, my workshop, again, even sort of tougher than last year's talk that I did at Singularity University was about the, un, it was the unsingularity. It was arguing that those who promote these very fantastical worlds of <laughs> downloading consciousness and, you know, emergent you know, life within technology within a generation aren't even working on the technology. They're not working on the engineering. They can't show how to do it but then i went you know further and uh, did a bit of critique of ray 
and there's of course most of the people in that room are big fans of Ray. I mean, they're at Singularity University because they read Ray's books, Certainly. et cetera, et cetera. So it was an interesting moment, and Brad Templeton was the host of the session. And for those who don't know Brad, he's certainly one of the most interesting people in in high tech. He's the chairman of the board of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and he's very sharp and very funny, and he's also Canadian. So he basically, at the session, said, look, you know, everything shouldn't always be, you know, everything is possible with technology. Somebody has to cast doubt on a lot of claims, and this is why Bruce is here. So, mm. and it but was I guess, wonderful, I guess my question time. to you with regards to this is, and this is something I found doing the talk at SRI in particular, what, I mean, what we are doing currently is fundamentally downloading aspects of our brains. I mean, in terms of both the persistence of this information, the ideas as they're circulated internationally, but also the fact that, um, I mean, giving the talk at SRI, I looked out on the audience and got the sense that a majority of the people that would hear this would hear it through podcast form rather than me speaking. And I got this sense that, Whilst it was the first time that I'd spoken in a decade, it also only had importance to me in terms of speaking out loud uh, to a, an audience, a live audience. And that the function of our discussion here, uh, even though it's very virtual and very much, you know, technically oriented in terms of recording, has probably a similar impact or maybe even a greater impact in terms of the numbers of people. I think my view with regards to the singularity is that. Uh, the, the wonder that they describe is, I agree with you, is naive um, fundamentally, but also it doesn't really acknowledge the wonder of what we're doing currently. I mean, your ability to travel means that you meet people constantly that already have some idea of the Evo grid in part through these kind of discussions, maybe through articles. or I mean, what more in terms of meeting you as a, a physical person could someone get uh, in terms of what the Evo grid is, rather than the vast amount of audio that's been recorded, documentation, video, etc. What what is the the personal element that Bruce Damer has to offer with regards to this idea? Well, certainly, I, I agree with you. And in fact, some of your earlier writings, Tom, where you talk about the singularity is already happening, but it's happening in a different way than Middle European philosophically inspired people uh, like. Moravitz or Minsky or Kurzweil say, which they think of it as some machine separate from us emerging into the cosmos as, as our equal. Whereas yeah. we we know, I think you and I both know that we are being assimilated into this huge group mind machine, uh, and we're establishing avatars and identities left, right, and center. We're becoming a pro, a process, a task, a yeah. servlet. We're a servlet within this space, and that is the true singularity. And it's sort of big and messy and involves multiple startups and failures and Facebooks and yeah. and huge amounts of screen time, and, and it's a big floppy thing, and there isn't, there isn't a collective intelligence. It's just this great big bubble that we're all entering into that somewhere down the road will turn into something, but it's just it's forming like clay around Well, us. I think it's already something. I mean, when I think about particularly, I mean, all the audio I record now goes up on the Internet Archive. Who knows how long that will persist for? But the sense that I'm getting currently, particularly from occasional email correspondence, is that there are people that are discovering the audio that we recorded four years ago 
and are getting inspired just by that and are picking it up progressively. Imagine the number of people that will pick it up in 10 years' time or 20 years' time or 30 years' time. I mean, you could potentially be, you know, almost like the, um, the proverbial kind of Star Trek convention where the elderly actor gets up and one of the young crowd calls out in episode three, you know, the door opens and these kind of things. I mean, my sense is that what we are recording here is actually as much a something that will be picked up in 10 or 20 years by people that are interested in these questions and maybe pick them up and take them in different directions. And really, particularly from the artificial life community perspective, this is the the legacy that was missing through the early 90s, really, and what we're doing now is, is very much creating that. So I think the singularity, not only in terms of technology, but in a wide variety of things, has already occurred. We are really part of the tail end of the comet. Um, but it's how this information is actually utilized. And I think, and this is what will really interests me about the Artificial Life Conferences. The last one had a huge student population, between 70 and 80% by some estimates. And I'm really interested in hearing from you and Peter what you get as the, I don't want to use the term the vibe, but the general sense of the conference in terms of, um, you know, folks who are currently maybe even still undergraduate. There was a large number of undergraduates at A-Life 11. Um, I'm wondering what those numbers will be like at A-Life 12. Potentially, people will come over from the games conference. I mean, I think these conferences, whilst, you know, one might downplay them as you record podcasts, but these conferences provide a window into the potential next generation of the artificial life developers. In that regard, I think we've already passed the singularity. We're really, it's it's something which is fundamentally post-singular. And the communication of this... I agree with what you say, that the people who may go to Singularity University or what have you are not necessarily part of the technology creation narrative that will create the next wave of singularities. But I think you may actually meet some of these people at A-Life 12 in, in student form. And I'm interested in hearing your feedback on that aspect in particular. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as far as if, I agree that the sort of pace of distribution of information has increased and all these new networks and things. But if you go back a generation, you had zines and you had bulletin boards. And if you go back a generation previously, you had magazines and you had book publications, journals, etc., and telephone conversations. And you keep going back. I mean, you go back to Gutenberg and, you know, the post-Gutenberg period where there was this explosion of books. I mean, but don't you I think, think at every scale change there's been at least a doubling of the distance of impact? I mean, I think about this with regards to my parents in terms of flying internationally and that certainly has a distance of impact but the immediacy of communicating with people internationally there's been nothing i mean people used to send letters through they used to send books manuscripts journals these kind of things but the immediacy and uh, almost instantaneous means of communication that the internet provides now has never really existed but you know tom what i don't see in this i i I see i see this incredible pace you know and i have a museum devoted to charting its emergence just just about a few hundred feet from me. But <laughs> the, the thing is, I don't see that it is qualitatively any different. Like, that there isn't some magical... I mean, I think what, what the singularity people read into all this is there's some magical, external, mystical entity that has emerged. So there's something qualitatively different. There's certainly a quantitative difference, but I don't see a qualitative difference between what I was doing now and what I was doing in the 80s with the same information but differently packaged. I just have more of it and it's faster. And, you know, I, 
I'm I'm going to get burned out on this stuff. Vastly more, yes, yes. And, and, but and, that in and, itself makes something that's different, Bruce. I mean, what you what you remain the same is is yourself and your perception. But even by describing the volume of information, it is distinctly different. It's different, but you know, you, you go out into the world, you know, and I'm traveling constantly, and I mean, the the, the differences between now and say nine, ten, eleven years ago is that everybody's sitting looking at a little square in their hand. And and otherwise, the infrastructure is the same. The media is more anxious and whatnot. People well, are more fragmented. Think about Wikipedia. I mean, I'm, I'm in two minds with regards to Wikipedia, particularly in terms of the vast simplification of information and also the, the lack of grit and complexity that a lot of us like to um, maintain. So, I mean, I'm... I'm anti-Wikipedia in some regard, but the ability to find information like you can find it through Wikipedia didn't exist a decade ago. I mean, for sure, I can sit here on a little hobby farm in the Santa Cruz Mountains and do, you know, pretty amazing projects without, you know, leaving my the bounds of my little kingdom here, and mm-hmm. and that's a wonderful thing. I mean, that that's a freedom thing, and. Um, yeah, you know, I think Jaron Lanier you know, sound, is sounding the more gloomy aspect of this whole thing with his book, I Am Not a Gadget, which we yes. talked about on a previous podcast. But on to, oh, by the way, on to uh, a little update on the Evo Grid. I mean, it's astounding. I mean, what we're seeing, just for those who who uh, may not have followed this whole development, the Evo Grid started generally fuzzily as as building a, a big simulation space uh, across the internet that would allow one to do origin of life experiments. Um, and even to the point, the long vision of the evil grid is to show an artificial origin of life occurring in a chemical simulation, chemical dynamics, and then be able to go unreplicated in some way in test tubes and things like this. You know, that's the grand vision, and if they go to evilgrid.org, there's a really cool YouTube video, a couple of them, that kind of uh, funny animation that explains this. But what we ended up settling on doing, because one can only do, you know, a very small subset, is to come up with ways to optimize the ratcheting, to optimize how fast you see phenomena emerging within such a thing. And then we had to decide, do we do one big simulation or do we do lots of of tiny simulations? And since we didn't have $100 million and a supercomputing facility to solve the boundary problems, we decided to do lots and lots and lots of what we call cameo or small simulations. And that is what is running 10 feet from me now is hundreds of thousands or maybe in this, this point millions of thousand atom cameo simulations where the client machines are looking for uh, molecules forming out of the base atoms and how long the molecules are and how many of them and what types of them are forming uh, and is there a simulation generating lots of varieties of molecules. So what we're running is only a test of the idea you can do what's called stochastic hill climbing within a distributed granular simulation. So that, Can you talk a little bit, Bruce, about the, I mean, certainly this is something that's happened in Noble Lake recently as well, and you're describing the movement of the simulation into something which you're now setting up into server farms. 
Can you describe the kind of qualitative and also just as a simulator difference between running the simulation on a on a standard desktop computer and this idea of actually, uh, in the case of what Peter did for you, burning CDs and installing them on multiple machines? I mean, from a simulation perspective, as an author's perspective, in terms of what the data is coming back as, how does that change things? Well, in fact, there's two measures. One is the is the simulate. You've asked yourself the question: Is the simulation the hill climbing method, which we we were doing, does that shorten the time by which a certain frame twenty thousand you see the long molecule you were hoping for, rather than going to frame a hundred thousand? The second thing you you hit the nail on the head. If you have a whole bunch of clients, uh, does that also shorten the time which you're you're going to see, you know that that long wiggly polysaccharide like molecule if you if you get that far. So it part of the work for my PhD or the major core of it is can these methods uh, bring you to results sooner. Even though the artificial chemistry we're doing, even though we're using Gromax, a real molecular dynamics engine, is extremely naive because we're only using Gromax to move the particles around. We're not we're not doing quantum mechanical, quantum dynamical bonding. We're doing extremely naive chemistry. So, so in a nutshell, it's showing for future generations who might want to do this kind of work that you might want to think of doing this kind of heavy optimization. And certainly, I mean, from my experience, and really I've done, I mean, I've done um, maintenance work, uh, but the stuff Bob Mottram has developed in terms of the Noblet web server in the past months or so has been really long-term stability issues, pushing boundaries. I mean, this is certainly my own experience with Noblet. When it's running on the desktop, particularly with the number of eights, the simulation space, these kind of things, I can be relatively comfortable in, in what I create, but when you start plugging in, as you describe, multiple machines all, all running in parallel, communicating, you really are pushing the boundaries of, of the kind of simulation environment that you may have seen previously on a, on a desktop. Uh, and I think that seems to be what you're describing as well, maybe yeah. maybe implicitly through the, the bug feed that, uh, that Peter provides on an almost daily basis now. Yeah, and there's, there's really no comparison between and Peter's, you know, slaved away for about just almost two years to build a distributed architecture to do this thing, um, to have client machines and a master server, and basically in all the diagrams we've been drawing for two years, it's now working. Literally, it was working at his house until the point he was saying, I just, I can't afford to wait 24 hours. I, I can't also go and get my wife's machine and commandeer that. And we just decided we have to build a grid. We have to build, and really, it's not hard. You, it's surprisingly easy. You just you burn a CD and you go and install it on all these machines, and it was wiping out uh, other operating systems like Windows 2000 and Windows 2003 Server. We're creaming them with yes. this big optimized Debian that then ties in through a home network. This is running on a just a home network and a DSL connection. Uh, and Peter's able to log in and watch it so that my my house here or my property has become this computing grid suddenly in 24 hours. But isn't that what you always wanted, Bruce? Isn't this just the embodiment of the dream? I think it is. Uh, I mean, when, when I bought the 
the dizzy barn, if you will, in 1998, I always thought one day there will be a rack of machines uh, doing some really cool thing, and, and it is happening. It's right there now, next to a lot of old machines that used to do cool things, you know, hundreds of old computers. And we but have the man himself in the chat as well. So, Peter, if you have anything to contribute, if you'd like to call in or just contribute through the chat, we'll be more than happy to uh, to read it out. Good, Peter. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he... Um, I hope I'm representing this fairly. <laughs> Another good reason to call in, Peter, if you if you hear it's being represented unfairly. We also have Aaron Stone in the chat. I'm not sure if you've uh, had uh, any interaction with Aaron. He was a contemporary of Terence McKenna's, and also um, I think he appeared on a bio to live uh, with Mark Badeau. But Aaron and I are now recording another podcast. Um, called Stone Monkey, which is not Terence McKenna inspired, but Sun Wukong, which is a mythical Chinese uh, character. So it's wonderful to have Heron in the chat as well. In fact, I think he wanted to invite you onto one of our Stone Monkey recordings, Bruce, which occasionally touches on aspects of artificial life, but is more probably more uh, more trialogue like, I think, in form. No, oh, wonderful, sure, absolutely. When I get back from this crazy travels. Certainly, certainly. We touch on a number of topics, and it's it's wonderful to have uh, Aaron in the chat. So, Bruce, you're going to Artificial Life 12. You're going to um, present a track and and co-host another track. Am I right in that? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm co-hosting the track on Origins of Life uh, with a person who does a lot of artificial chemistries, and then we're doing a probably an hour plus long seminar on the Evo Grid, and it's really, it's going to be a discussion of what I'm trying to do uh, next, and this is what the PhD is about, and this is what the post-PhD is going to be about, which is attempting to kickstart a subfield called Computational Origins of Life. A.K.A. And, cool. A.K.A. Cool, coined by yours, by uh, your, you yourself, Tom. So um, this hopefully will become an edited book, and I've already brought this up with Dick, who said, yes, absolutely, I can work with Joseph and, you know, and yet another book. But I, at A-Life 12, I'm going to be recruiting people Very good. Uh, to say, you know, is this, is this an emergent subfield? People are thinking of computing at the chemical level in order to shine light on origins of life approaches. Mm. Uh, if we had a volume, it would, be, it would be trying to do something like the protocells volume did with Rasmussen, Badeau, and others. But here's another thought for you, Bruce. I mean, mm. the the game conference that you're talking at prior to that may also have people that would have an interesting perspective from a completely different angle of the same kind of problems. So particularly the topics um, that the the conference appears to be covering, you, you may get a lot of interesting people that could also rise on this kind of stuff at the game conference as well. Yeah, and and one of the one of the things I need to uh, really research in the next week is a lot. And w one of the fellows at the Singularity Universities described work in trying to do AI and A life within, say, Second Life or multiplayer gaming, where you've got a lot of rich characters and objects, things going on, but they're they're very they're very procedural. And could you make something that was sort of open-ended, that quote-unquote lived in these environments? And my argument will be, the one day absolutely this will happen, but that B 
these environments are not really architected for this stuff. Well, this um, is an interesting problem, and certainly with the work Bob Bottrom's doing with the Noble Ape web server currently, the aim is to either run OpenSim on the, the same server, which is like a, a second-life server, an open-source second-life server, or in fact engineer a, a thin layer to the second-life client. Because in terms of the power that you get just for the second-life client in terms of farming off graphics rendering, I think this is a doable project. This is almost like a master's level project for some um, budding uh, computer programmer who has an interest both in computer graphics, imaging, and also artificial life. Because I think the the thinness of the Second Life client interface in terms of descriptions of frames and forms and these kind of things really lends itself very heavily um, to something like a, a node-like web server or some connection with OpenSim, I think we're reaching the critical mass, both with regards to, as you're finding out currently, cheap distributed uh, processing, but also increasingly, as Peter has found and as I have uh, uh, Bob Mottram in the UK, people that have experience developing these web server technologies to kind of partner with folks such as yourself and myself who have a background developing these simulation technologies. So I think the potential for this happening within the next couple of years is probably far stronger than even if you'd asked me two or three months ago. Um, and really it's through my own experience working with, with Bob Bottram to get the Noble Ape web server running. But I think um, certainly I talked with Peter probably maybe almost a year ago. I'm not sure when the OpenSim people were on Floss Weekly and also communicated with the OpenSim people directly about the potential to take what they're doing in terms of an uh, open-source second-life server and plug in an existing artificial-like program, be it Noble 8, Polyworld, Breve, Framsticks, uh, you have it. I mean, the, the stuff that's coming out currently of Critiding, if they could plug into the second-life server and they have, you know, 10, 15 uh, university-age undergraduate developers who probably could uh, set upon that kind of task relatively quickly. So certainly the technology's out there. It's really just a matter of probably one or two people who are sufficiently inspired actually plugging it all together. I think this is certainly, I mean, if, if you go out and talk to people, this is the message I'd convey, Bruce, and the technologies are there. It's just a matter of having a couple of well, people. Here's, with here's, the, here's the, the problems that I see there, and this came out of, and, and we, we, of course, had this on a very early bio of the podcast, mm -hmm. the conversation with uh, with Will Wright at the NASA yeah. the World's Workshop and his comment that uh, certainly Spore is not artificial life and, in fact, a true artificial life environment would be very uninteresting. It would just be a, just a, a huge mass of computation with a few yeah, things but happening. I think that's I think that's I mean the background I've met more people from EA XEA people uh, in the past couple of months, and the story universally seems to be that what Will Wright saw with Spore was a function of a wide variety of things, none of which had anything to do with artificial life. Most of them were to do with politics, funding, and other such nonsense that, you know, they, he obviously got into with regards to game development. And my feeling is that Will Wright's the wrong person to ask about these things just because... But, but here's, but here's where, where the bifurcation does come. If you look at, uh, and I know uh, Ben Gertzel and his group at uh, Nova Mente, I believe that's the company, were building sort of an AI... AL dog in 
in Second Life that that tries to kind of be like an Eliza. It tries to be more than just a bot. But, you know, what you're dealing with inside Second Life is that it's clocked to the human experience. So, But you, you don't have that in OpenSim. You have that in Second Life because of the way the Second Life server is written. In OpenSim, you have an ability basically to have another machine or another couple of machines that are running in their own independent time environment and just okay. feeding back in. What actually happened with those, and believe me, I've, I've communicated with and worked with a couple of generations of both people at Linden Labs and also uh, users of the environment looking to do what you're describing, and that was based in the flaws of the Second Life server technology developed at Linden Lab. What you get with OpenSim is an ability to have something that's running in parallel, that's interrogating in parallel, and doesn't have to operate at the speed of the Second Life server at all. Um, so uh, I think there's a, they're distinctly different technologies, and that actually solves that problem. Well, I, I definitely need to get some more info from you before we head to Denmark, because that, that is fascinating, that you could have a separate a separate high-power you know, behavioral server or evolution server running on the side of OpenSim, and then OpenSim is, has its small buffers in its local regions, but it could still display sophisticated results of something going on at a different time scale somewhere else. So Bob Mottram has a web interface. I mean, he also has a Twitter client and some of things connected up to the Novelite web server. And what's fascinating is, particularly now because he's pushing the boundaries of the various resolutions, but that's exactly what you get. You can observe this information through a variety of formats. He just has a web interface kind of skinning it currently. But the ability, yeah, I mean, this, this is the idea. This is the thing that needs to get out there to particularly the game development community that the kind of problems certainly that Will Wright and others were talking about related to old paradigms. And thankfully, we, we have open source that basically can tackle these things both with cheap computing and also... I mean, Bob Mottram, it, it's, it's, it's probably the wrong thing to describe him as a saint, particularly to the, uh, to the strong, uh, strong atheist community that listen into Bios Live. But I mean, I think similarly to what Peter Newman has done with your work, Bob's ability to come in from a completely different perspective, his background is in robotic vision and the, some aspects of automation and just completely turn noble life on its head. And I think this really is the strength of open source as well that these individuals are obviously out there and by releasing source code and providing information and giving assistance, we kind of empower them as well to work on these projects. And I think there are probably tens if not hundreds of folk out there like Bob and Peter who, uh, who, who need to be inspired basically that these are not uh, intractable problems. In fact, most of the problems have already been solved. It just requires this little extra bit of work um, to is get it into something which is wonderful. Tom, is there some examples uh, using OpenSim of a really sophisticated hybrid joining of the problem the with human... OpenSim is that it's written in Mono, which is the C sharp hybrid. Um, so my I I was very sympathetic to the OpenSim guys up until a point. I think the way to do it is actually to remove OpenSim and just take the very thin communication. Uh, communication with the client directly because basically if you've got for example a Novalate web server then you have the environment fundamentally running to a far greater resolution than you would get with OpenSim anyway. However, 
I'm not part of the general licensing discussion. My sense is that there are probably a number of uh, examples out there. Maybe maybe Peter Newman knows of more. Uh, but it's certainly something you could investigate and something I can assist with prior to your departure. My sense with OpenSIM as a technology is rather than its specific implementation currently, it's just the ability to have that interface, and that interface may be quickly, quickly superseded by a better one, which is more tailored to the kind of stuff that we're doing. But there's nothing saying that we couldn't write into OpenSIM as, as described. By the way, I just, I just stepped into the makeshift server room, and I noticed, and Peter should take note, that the uh, client one is running at 99% CPU just flat out. So it's, um, I, I, I suppose down in the barn, clients two and three are probably running flat out as well. So uh, hopefully he's seeing a faster uh, stepping process through this giant data trees uh, on Debbie, which is the main server. Very good, very good. Interestingly, I mean, I, I went into Apple and Intel while I was in the Bay Area, and Apple is moving in two very distinct directions. One, obviously, is being a cell phone company. But secondly, because I spent time at Ericsson, I understand that cell phone companies also like to be uh, rack companies as well, kind of the face to the customer and the face to the service provider fundamentally. So there seems to be some interesting supercomputing stuff going on at Apple currently. And um, in particular, the... Uh, the Unity engine and uh, visualization methods coming through that in terms of massive distribution as well. So I think there are a number of uh, there are a number of possible angles in terms of creating uh, vast artificial life simulations with very rich visual interfaces. Because I get the sense that Apple, in particular, wants to provide media servers and high quality content servers going into the future too. And this is what we're describing as well. I mean, the notion that these um, you know, simulations running through and providing content uh, is exactly what companies like Apple want to be doing into the future as well, maybe as a as a productive example of this kind of technology. Um, so I think um, Intel too, obviously, has some, some interests in this area. And I think um, you, you were uh, talking at some stage about using, was it CalIT squared or CalIT cubed? Yeah, the... and in, in fact... Um... Our good friend John Graham uh, is in the middle. The reason we're doing our own grid is he's in the middle of uh, machines have been shipped to him, and he's constructing a new cluster, a new raw of some sort, and it's not done. And we actually really need to be running more data before a Life 12 and for my writing. So hence the makeshift evil grid here at Ancient Oaks Farm. You had described at some stage using the uh, folding at home framework so you could actually farm some of this out to a, a broader community. Uh, I mean, it doesn't sound like you're at that stage currently, but is that still part of the dream? It is part of the dream. Uh, it would really, for, for, for this whole thing to go forward, we need to find a funding source that can support, you know, certainly Peter part of me and, and maybe a couple of other resources uh, for the next couple of years, um, you know, a traditional kind of grant or a, a, a philanthropic benefactor or something, because certainly it's, in order for it to keep going, it needs to have a pool of money long-term. Certainly. And that's what we, what we don't have at the moment. Certainly. Well, I mean, the feedback from Osho was that the, particularly for uh, vast computing simulation, the there seems to be an ever-increasing 
kind of DARPA intelligence budget in the U.S. And really, he said, it's the, the matter is just framing these projects in such a way that they could get funded through this grant money. I mean, literally tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars is now being channeled into this kind of stuff through um, you know, various uh, grants of various sizes. Um, and I think that may be the distinction, basically, in Osher of, I guess, a year and a half ago to Osher now, although I don't want to necessarily editorialize <laughs> too much on a bio to live. Um, but no, he was very positive that the, the funding for these kind of things does exist currently. We just might need to move slightly outside our comfort space well, really, just in terms of reframing what we're doing, not using them as, uh, you know, massive killing systems, but just reframing what we're doing in such a way that it could be used for disaster. Or, um, in your case, I guess, framing the Evo grid for these kind of things, the, the many aspects of it, particularly, um, there seems to be a lot of medical-related uh, funding coming through these kind of grant sources currently. So if you could prove an ability to uh, to do prolonged medical research with the Evo grid as a tool that needed seed funding, there, there may be some way of getting uh, U.S. government money through that. And um, Peter, can, if he's still listening, certainly um, the, the, what we will have achieved, you know, our modest achievement with our prototype this year, allowing me to not only write a Ph.D. dissertation and hopefully defend it successfully, but to pull together this, this book, um, that would give, you know, I think in 2011, once I can kind of come out from that, I may be able to, at that point, uh, write one of these grants uh, and come out from under all this, this writing that's necessary. Because certainly in 2011, if I managed to complete the PhD and I managed to get a book underway, I will be in a really good position to know know the people who uh, might write the grant with us or, or be co-PIs or be, uh, you know, advisors on this grant, and it would become stronger and stronger, and that sometime in 2011 it might make sense to actually uh, go back and into the money pot and try to get uh, more funding that way, or else I'll meet a, a billionaire at a, at a, at a uh, Burning Man street festival or something, and it'll all come together. It is an interesting thing. I mean, certainly at the end of the SRI talk, Osher again said the the problem with your artificial life developers is you haven't gotten the business model right yet. And it made me think about, you know, the, the problem from that perspective. It's quite a, an interesting perspective. But, yeah, there's, there's no kind of micropayments funding the Evo grid model, I don't think. It, it does need sizable funding from probably yeah. just a couple of sources. And I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm of the great, of the great conviction that this, that the true artificial life endeavor, and certainly something like the Evo grid, which may or may not be an artificial life endeavor, is visionary basic science, and, it, and, it, and there isn't a commercial model for it. Uh, it, it is, it is the kind of science that and technology that generates commercial platforms. Say, for instance, down the road, really good chemical dynamics simulation and analysis in a distributed way is going to be very valuable. But we're at the fundamental vision, fundamental invention phase, and you just can't put it into the shoehorn of a commercial project. It is fundamental. It is basic science. Yes, yes. But it's interesting, and, particularly going to uh, well, but both the conferences that you're going to be attending, and certainly there's a pragmatism within games 
which enables to, well, I don't know, in terms of what you're describing, the whole notion of basic science in itself is uh, is quite quite a distinct thing in terms of the creation of tools. I think, there's, in my own thinking, there's really some distinction between tool creation and and basic science. I guess this is my question, which is kind of a perennial one with regards to the Evo grid, in terms of the the possible feedback into science, the element of the sublime, and also the the art element. But what you're describing there really is basic science too. There is an element of art in basic science. By the way, I just stepped into the server room, and here's just as a funny aside, you can tell when something is really working when there's there's heat. Um, there's just that room temperature is about 15 degrees. Uh, Fahrenheit hotter than it was about an hour ago, an hour and a half ago when we started this call, and it wasn't that way uh, this morning when I was doing the testing. So the heat of of the CPUs now um, doing this work, it's just it's very visceral. Yes, yes, yeah. This is the uh, this is the narrative with regards to the early development of Nobel life at Apple as well. They used the heat factor to uh, to measure performance initially. And um, uh, our mutual friend Gerald Jung, his wife and daughter, was supposed to be through here. I haven't been able to make contact with him, although he's back on internet contact. He's always commented that uh, the solutions that we need to make with artificial life need to minimize that heat into the future, otherwise we will just be seen as being the uh, the great polluters of, uh, <laughs> of computing. <laughs> so maybe we can get some feedback to... Uh, to minimize that heat in the future. I always recount that that basically is the way Intel has used uh, has used Nobelape in recent years. But, uh, yeah, the heat is a noticeable thing, Bruce. Yeah, if, if things are running hot, you, you're going somewhere. You may be com- computing garbage to get garbage out, or you may actually be climbing hills. Certainly, certainly. So in terms of what you're running currently, is the plan in the last couple of days before you leave to put it all together in graphs, or are you in relative real-time assembling the data in a graphical form too? Well, Peter's probably jumping up and down here, but um, what we're actually hoping to do, we, we set out some targets in early July, and he's, his argument is... Um, we, well, he, he, can ex- he can execute these things, and they take 10, 20, 30 hours, and they go deep into these trees. And then you jump, dump this giant JSON file, and then you, jump, you dump common delimited files, and you can then go and plot. What was fascinating is he plotted this graphical tree chart, which is uh, very similar to the one we drew by hand uh, back in the beginning of the project that showed branches going down and nothing interesting happening and then stopping the computing and then going and looking at the other branches and then backtracking. And, and it's exactly what's happening. Uh, we also will do, do line charts, wiggly charts, showing a hopefully um, jumping complexity that plateaus and then maybe rolls back a bit and then jumps to another plateau, uh, which is was in the Artificial Life 12 paper. But we'll have many, many more such graphs for many for three or four key cases, and we'll just run data and run it and run it and run it until we've established what is the factor, what is the factor of improvement over this, over a control, which is an undirected search. Uh, 
so you, that's that's where the science is going to come in. Where if we can show and the and the tools and technology, if we can show, God, goodness knows, an order of magnitude improvement over doing an undirected search or an undirected generation of these frames, then then we have done something. Certainly, certainly. Well, one of the luxuries of my time in the Bay Area was spending probably slightly more than half a day with Jeffrey Ventrella and the ability to talk to him in real time, to tell war stories, to uh, explore uh, explore mutual friends. And also, um, the, uh, the John Linear's book has impacted Jeffrey very heavily as well in terms of his own thinking. Uh, so the ability to just sit down and talk with him also about this idea of what open source means in a kind of practical sense, the idea that... Uh, you're not necessarily putting your best source code out all the time, but you're putting it out in such a way that other folks can download it and prod it and give feedback. In terms of your um, in terms of your wish list with regards to Artificial Life 12, do you anticipate bringing in folks who are interested in developing uh, on the Evo Group, perhaps putting their own chemical simulations in or doing different kinds of tinkering? I mean, is there a part of the kind of broader visions of the Evo grid that still relates to open source recruitment? Uh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I have had preliminary discussions with the people at the Flint Lab, which is Steen's group in Denmark, which is hosting this conference, about uh, down the road integrating, they're trying to use LAMPS, which is another chemical dynamics simulator, to try to, to do something integrated where we we use the methodology of the EvoGrid, which is distributed simulation and search, to help them with their protocell, their chemical protocell development, by setting up experimental scenarios that can try to figure out what is happening in the test tube um, and try to shine a light on the darkness of this attempting to make a chemical protocell. Uh, so that would require, I think, us to go into some joint grant writing uh, if we could if we could get some kind of two three four year sustaining grant to to co-develop software to get together uh, with the Flint group or with any other group it would put us in the running for for a longer term uh, you know stay in this thing certainly certainly and I think the ability also to empower undergraduate students and even graduate students I mean, certainly looking at uh, the successes that uh, Hypernet has seen, well, really neat into Hypernet, a large part of that has been the ability to get access to graduate students and these kind of things. And really that is almost a, the next generation of the uh, the EvoGrid fold, basically, particularly if they, come through, uh, if they come through a group like Flint. In terms of the numbers, how many, how many graduate students does uh, Steen have at Flint? Uh, he has just a handful, I think. Uh, most of the people what, that he has, he has like a couple of graduate students doing the bench chemistry, but everyone else there is, uh, you know, a full PhD researcher uh, from some really good, good and well-known groups like Chostak's group at Harvard, for example. And uh, by the way, uh, to, just to note that the Evil Grid uh, for the audience here that it is a fully open source. It's on SourceForge. Uh, and you know, it's we are completely happy if there's somebody out there that wants to to work with us to continue development. 
And certainly you also have the benefit that folks who are listening in have probably also followed the uh, the Evo grid through its many steps. I think really the, the history of Bayer's Alive has almost paralleled the creation and development of the Evo grid in terms of periodic updates as well, Bruce. So it may in fact be the case that people discovered the SourceForge uh, repository, wonder what it's about, and then come back to Biota Lives in order to tune into the history of the Evo grid development. So there may be some kind of strange symbiosis there. Yeah. Well, Bruce, it's been a, a pleasure as always chatting with you this evening. I understand the next few weeks are probably going to be uh, very busy. Um, I understand. I mean, we we one thing that I think I've probably already mentioned out to the Biota Live listening audience, but we have the Grey Thumb blog in database form, which I guess will be something that Peter will look at when he uh, when he recovers returning from uh, from uh, A-Life 12 and the, the other conference and the extended flight. But uh, our plan, I think, is probably to put it online. One of the advice uh, points that Apple uh, provided me was that they are using blogs technically at Apple increasingly and almost well, actually, to the level of academic publication, they said that uh, blog posts, as far as they're concerned, are just as good as academic publication. And the feedback that they gave me was that I needed to uh, spend a little, not necessarily a little less time podcasting, but perhaps uh, some amount of time documenting things on blogs as well. So I think when Peter gets back, we may have to have a chat with him about perhaps floating a biota blog to fill the the void that was left when the Grey Sun blog departed, because I think the uh, the artificial life community has been missing a, a repository with multiple authors that are writing on it continuously, and the ability to have uh, have you and uh, Gerald Jung, potentially Jeffrey, potentially other folks around the world contributing to a, a shared blog would be a wonderful thing. And also, as you say, with regards to this kind of media. Uh, it tends to come together through blog posts. So if we had a primary blog that was also a source for releasing information, then that would in itself be syndicated and moved around and probably uh, you know, do a bit to promote the Evo grid and a wide variety of the other projects that we talk about on a regular basis here, Bruce. Yeah, very good move, very good idea. Well, Bruce, it's been a pleasure as always. I'm going to be following your photo stream. No doubt we'll, we'll have you back on... Uh, when you get back, and I look forward to uh, at least having the audio from, from the stuff that you're attending uh, for the potential to put out to the uh, Biota community so they can hear. Are you going to be recording both your, your speech at the game conference prior as well as the stuff at A-Life 12? Are you planning on recording both those things? Absolutely, and, and then I'll have uh, slides that could be linked in. Wonderful. And, and, and yeah, if you meet people, together. if you meet people at, at either location that want to talk to you, I guess you're going to have to keep a constantly charged, constantly updated recorder on you at all times for the potential of these kind of discussions just to evolve in front of you. Absolutely, yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'll let you get back to your uh, to your server slash steam room. It sounds like everything's going wonderfully in that location. And uh, I'll chat with you soon, Bruce. All the best with your trip. And for folks listening in, as always, what I want to do actually is start putting uh, start putting new people into the uh, Biota Live communication. Obviously, we had Jeff Clune on recently, uh, and I'm looking for more people like Jeff. I mean, I really feel in some regard that we caught Jeff at a point just before. Um, his uh, his amazing rise to media stardom, and I'd like to hear from other folks who are developing artificial life projects, or maybe even super users, folks that are 
using artificial life projects and have some interesting results that they'd like to talk about as well. Because really, BioLive is made by the, the folks that participate. So for folks listening in, thank you very much. If you have any topics that you'd like on future BioLives, please contact me, tom at noble8.com. Good night, Bruce. Good night, Tom.